Do you want to learn the basics of competitive strategy and how to develop your B2B value proposition? It's episode 44. Michael Field from Evetfield Partners joins us to share his expertise in market analytics, competitor analysis, and customer research, which all leads to the development of your value proposition and go-to market strategy. We ask questions like, who are you afraid of? Finding out the fears and anxiety our customers have to help us find our superpower and our kryptonite. Please enjoy the episode. Thanks for being a fab listener. Support me by subscribing and telling your friends. Welcome to the Johnny Ross Audio Experience. I'm Johnny Ross, founder and digital marketing strategist of Fleet Marketing. Each podcast, I'll be bringing you an expert to inspire you, to give you some great business growth takeaways, and to get you thinking about marketing and the bigger picture of how businesses can improve, adapt, and grow. I look forward to sharing this with you on each podcast. So here we go. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Today I've got Michael Field with me. How are you, Michael? Very well. Great to see you. And you. Uh, So you're a partner at Vetfield Partners. You're based in Sydney. Yes, Sydney, Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's the evening there. Just started raining. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) 9.30-ish. Kids have just gone to bed and the, the, the rain has just started. (laughs) so we are live streaming we're live on linkedin we're live on youtube and in the facebook group uh this will also be a podcast so if you're listening right now thank you for joining us on the podcast uh it's great that you're here so thanks for watching thanks for listening uh if you are watching uh and it's not live please put hashtag replay in the comments just to get an idea of uh how and who's watching Tell me about uh, Avetfield Partners and how you ended up uh, how you ended up getting on the face of competitive strategies and and, and uh, value propositions. And we're going to try and nail help people nail competitive strategies today. But tell me how you got here. Sure, Evertfield Partners is is as it sounds. It's a partnership between um, Mike Evert, my business partner, and myself. We first met in a private equity owned business, so we're not private equity. Um, background folk but a private equity owned business where we were geared um, with the responsibility for selling that business and Mike was the CEO and leading the whole of business and my role was marketing and strategy and we had what many would call a Vulcan mind meld we just um, clicked we saw the world in very similar ways and we saw a lot of opportunity with that type of thinking um, and post the successful sale of that business we both um, in different ways started consulting and over time we did more and more projects together and um, Everett Field more evolved than was consciously formed we were both run- Mike was running a consulting business in Melbourne and I was in Sydney and anytime something that had you know, some really gnarly handles on it that needed some extra brain power I'd ring Mike and say do you want to work on this together and in the end we um, internally we call it betting everything on black we just put the businesses together and and ran as Everett Field and it's um that's seven or eight years ago now and it's been a great success excellent I was just saying you mentioned Melbourne then I was just saying my sister is over in Melbourne hoping to get to see her at some point soon hopefully Uh, so uh yeah that'll be good um if you're watching or listening right now just to be clear we're going to help uh you nail 
competitive strategies. We're going to look at how it's really important to have that in place well before thinking about your value proposition and way before doing any marketing. So a lot of the podcasts that I do talk about marketing, talk about uh, how to market your business. But, you know, like if any of you are familiar with any of my training workshops, you'll see that way at the beginning of those, I talk about having business objectives and goals very clearly set up way before you do any marketing. And I think to be fair, Michael, it's it's probably impossible to set clear objectives until you understand your your what you call your superpower. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, marketing simply amplifies a business. And if the business is poorly thought through or poorly structured, then it amplifies the the weaknesses in the business as much as it does the strength. So I am in heated agreement with you. We would very often talk a client out of um, turning on any aggressive marketing engine until they'd resolved a, a number of key issues. Otherwise, it will simply amplify the gaps as well as the strengths. And throughout this podcast, uh, we're going to try and give some actionable tips, things that you can do immediately, uh, really help you to get thinking and sort of elevate your thoughts around this subject. So, sure, I think it depends on the stage of business. So, an established business versus a startup, um, a, a business that's a challenger versus an established business. So, I think that there's different challenges for different stages of business. But I think that, uh, to your earlier pointer. A, a really good starting point is that, you know, that that statement that there, there might be a niche in the market, but is there a market in the niche? So are you actually uh, identifying something where there is truly winnable, contestable market that you can capture? And do you genuinely have the capabilities to capture that? Or is it just an ambitious thought? And we feel that it's in everyone's best interest to get to the fact base of that as quickly as possible. And one of the harder parts, I think, around strategy as opposed to marketing is that strategy is about facts. Strategy is really understanding what is the fact base that's going to inform your decisions, whereas marketing is about amplified something um, that may already be assumed to be true. So, you know, we just need more customers. We just need to get our brand out there. We just need to, you know, find more people who want to buy our product. Well, the, the, the strategy piece comes before that, and it's some of the business disciplines that you were talking about earlier. And I think that those are really difficult conversations to have, with, particularly with business owners when it's their baby, uh, but they're absolutely critical for the success of the business and for the business owner to get the outcomes they want. So just to be clear, you typically work with medium-sized businesses, sort of, you know, probably minimum 5 million turnover going up to sort of 50 million, uh, maybe the sweet spot sort of 20 up. Um, it's typically the owners, the MDs, the leaders, but all of this can be applied to any business, whatever size. It's that it's it's that thinking of strategy. You may, I guess, the differences are just how you do it and and the, and the methods. Yeah, that that's exactly right. The, the the thinking is available to anybody for free, as far as I'm concerned. That good quality thinking is something that can be learnt, uh, and it's not just from marketing disciplines or strategy disciplines. It's um, a broader analytics thinking uh, to say, well, how do you get to the fact base? How do you find that out? So that's a combination of research, intuition. Um, there's a number of things that come into it. But I, but I agree with you that it, it it's not limited. It, it, this 
competitive strategy is not limited to the upper echelons of the business world. It is it is something that is fundamental to a startup, to a to a solo practitioner, to a small partnership, a small collaborative of people. Um, whether that be a food stall at the markets, or whether that be a a, a you know a complex um, you know multinational business, you still have to have that fact base right, and you still have to be working with the right information. Yeah, totally. For those that are with us live right now, uh, it, please do comment. Please do ask questions. Uh, I can see uh, Julia Owit uh, is here. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, please do let let us know if you're watching right now. And if you've got questions for myself or Michael, please do submit. If you're on the podcast uh, and it's not live, you know, well, we're really pleased you're here listening after the recording. So thank you. Um, now then, Michael, uh, we, I'm conscious that actually the word or the phrase competitive strategy, what the hell does it mean? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, all, all strategy really is competitive. If you look at it through that military lens, well, strategy is about winning in a context. It's about winning against you know, an environment or an, against a competitor. So you're right. In a way, um, competitive strategy can be hugely misunderstood. Um we would probably reframe that a little bit and talk about competitive assets. So what are the competitive assets that you would need to have in order to be successful in whatever pursuit it was? So that might be um, increase in revenue, uh, margin, market share. It may be uh, increasing enterprise value in preparation for a sale. So there might be conscious choices you make in your competitive strategy that don't actually create uh, long-term value for you, they might create short-term value in the positioning of the business for sale. So competitive strategy is a series of decisions that you make and uh, around the competitive assets that you would need to build or assemble in order to deliver on the business outcome. And like I said, that business outcome may vary. Some business owners are saying, you know what, I want to be out of this thing in two years. What do I need to do? And others are saying, you know what, I inherited this. You know, this is a third generation family business. I, I want to give it to the next generation in better condition than I found it. And I want to do everything I can to make sure that I've honoured the legacy of, of, of my granddad. So all of those things are absolutely valuable pursuits. And we, we think that you just need to look at what's the outcome and then what are the assets that you'd need to build to deliver on that. So you talked about uh, making decisions on mm. the, I guess, the research that you do in the early stage. How, how, what are the things that I need to do to help me make start making some of those decisions? Some of the things you need to do, or some of the so, questions so, you need to ask. So, well, I guess, uh, yeah, no, fair point. I guess it is about questions I need to ask. So, so what do I so to to start coming up with a competitive strategy? What are yes. the things that I need? To, yes, I guess. What are the things I need to be asking myself or the business, the organisation? What that's a yeah, fair point, Michael. Yeah, sure. No, fair enough. Um, I just saw a question too from um, Nathan Sangster, which we'll come to in a moment. But the 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 questions that need to be asked around competitive strategies, going back to the earlier comment, like there might be a niche in the market, but is there a market in the niche? So really looking for a fact base to say. What is the genuine, contestable, winnable market for this particular idea? And are we properly positioned and fully um, skilled 
and resourced to capture that? And if not, what would we need to do to capture that? I'll, I'll give you a really good example. We worked with an organisation that manufactured stainless steel tanks for a particular category, particular large-scale production category. There were seven or eight other industries that they could get into, petrochemical, uh, water, edible oils, milk, these types of things, and an analysis of all of those markets, the market that actually on the surface looked like the best market on analysis was the worst market for them to enter into. Reason being, on, an, on analysis, it was much more contested than we realised. It had much lower margins than we realised. The life cycle of the customers was much shorter, so payments and uh, defaults were very, very high, and the market growth was flat. However, on the surface, it didn't look like that because the PR around this industry was really, really high. So I, th I think importantly, it's around looking at the specific project and saying, well, what would I need to know about this industry to make a, a, an investment decision? And you, you have to take the view or adopt the mindset of a dispassionate, independent person, would they put their money up? So not do you believe in it, does this feel right, you know, I like this, but if you were to take this proposition, maybe not to a bank, but if you were to take this proposition to a private equity, to an independent funder and say, listen, this is the opportunity, this is what we know about it, would you like to put your money in it? You need to be able to answer the questions that they would most likely have. And they're looking for a much higher evidence base than, look, it just feels good, it looks right, we think we should you know, go that way. And, and, and some of that just comes from creating conversations and, and researching with potential clients, existing clients, uh, and uh, who else would be in that mix of, of people you could be speaking to? Yeah, it, look, it's a great question. It, it is it is an assembly of multiple data points. And very often the businesses that we work with, there, there isn't a singular source of that information. So if you're in one of the big categories, if you're in motor vehicle manufacturing, the government's deeply interested in that category. So they capture a lot of data and publish a lot of data. You don't have to go very far to find the data points. But if you're in you know, non-architectural handrailing or, I don't know, software in the education business or something like that, there's no hard data points. So you're right, you really have to go and look for the hard evidence points. And sometimes that's government um, resources, sometimes that's third party resources where you can find some uh, a fact base. You really do need to do a very um, analytical view of the competitive landscape. And it's not a cursory glance of their Facebook page and you know a few other sort of key metrics. It's a deep dive to say, what is the underlying superpower of that business? What's the stronghold that we would not be able to topple because we don't have the resources or they're too embedded? And what's the weak underbelly where we feel we can carve some market share and we're confident that we can assemble the resources to carve that market share out? But the most insightful uh, point, reference point for that information is talking to what we call the invisible buying committee, which is that full spectrum of, we mentioned in another conversation, Johnny, you and I, with um, the building and construction market. It's one thing to talk to procurement, but it's critical to talk to the architect, the specifier, the builder, the installer, the project manager, the building owner, and, and a whole range of other people who uh, there's 
you know, anywhere between half a dozen to a dozen other people who'd have a view and an opinion and an influence on the buying outcome for your product, but they may not be the person signing the the purchase order. Yeah. So, you know, once you capture all of those sorts of things, you've got a much, much clearer view as to what to do and where the opportunities sit. Yeah. Uh, and and you mentioned building and construction, some of the top areas that you're in, agriculture, uh, mining, manufacturing, but you cover, cover a, a wide range of sectors. Uh, you talked. Uh, you mentioned Nathan uh, Sangster asked a question, does USP come into this subject? Well, I, I think that's quite a good question because for me, uh, yeah, it sounds like if I want to be competitive, I need a USP. Is that wrong or right, Michael? You you. you... You do need a unique selling proposition, but it actually needs to be one that the customer cares about, not one that you care about. And it would be our argument that many of the um, inverted commas USPs that we've seen that that um, businesses are backing and getting behind are in fact table stakes to be in the game. That you know the USP saying, well, we've got the best you know quality product, we've got the best service, we've got the best people. You know, we, we feel that a, a business needs to be an able to answer the following question which is you know what do you do differently or better than your competitors that your customers care so deeply about they would be prepared to pay a premium and the add-on to that is that you simply cannot use the words quality service people range etc and that's a much tougher question and the only way you'll find that answer is by that deep engagement with the end customer to find out why they really buy, what really um, drives their buying behavior. And the, the USP has to be so profoundly strong that um, it's, it's, it's um, impenetrable from competitive copycats. And, and in, in you know, the modern digital world that we live in mimicking the language and copying the, the 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 text of what somebody says oh we do this they we do that it's very easy to copy and mimic the language so you need to actually find a way that to, to hardwire that and find something really deep and meaningful for it to be a genuine usp so so the the uh, my understanding is the three key parts to coming up with a, a competitive strategy are the market analytics the uh, competitor analytics and then the customer research um, yes. if you were to just try and give me some things that you know maybe if i'm listening and watching right now i'm a business owner a director what are the the immediate things that i could be doing yeah the 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 one that people want to do is market size you know what's our market share you know how big is the market and what share have we got it's actually for, for small and medium businesses, as long as there's plenty of runway in front of you, it's actually probably the least important question, you know, unless you're going for funding or something like that. The, the, the real critical action that I feel any business owner should take is to find a way to get independent insights from their customers that are not um, sort of curated through the sales lens. And what I mean by that is the majority of feedback that businesses get on the, uh, on their value proposition is actually through the sales autopsy. You know, they do the monthly sales review and deals won and lost, and they go, "Oh, we lost that deal. What happened? Or oh, the competitor dropped, you know, dropped their price." It's like, well, okay, so we need to review our prices. No, no, that is not what you need to do. So, um, we believe that although the the intel that comes from the sales team is really really important it's a singular lens and it's just a reflection on your current value proposition so you need to find a way to get 
customer to tell you the things they don't want to tell you. And quite often that's an independent person talking to them who's got no skin in the game, who's skilled in asking those questions and can really unpick that buying behaviour and those buying drivers and decisions uh, to tell you what you need to hear. And in fact, it's a common question we ask when we're doing qualitative customer interviews is what's the one thing, you know, we're working for custom X, what's the one thing that they need to hear that you think nobody's yet told them or doesn't want to tell them? Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? And and it's and I guess it's also going out there and, and asking customers. And I like the idea of an independent or a third party because you get more more real answers, don't yes. you? But but going out and asking, you know, what else could we be doing to offer more value? I think that's a a, a key thing. You know, what what else? How else could we add more value? And um and and that could I would have thought uh, surely feed into a, a value proposition. So so you you do this research, you get the analytics, you sort of understand. I mean, you, you talked about the you understand your superpower. In fact, uh, an earlier conversation we talked about kryptonite. I have a feeling there's a a, a Superman theme going on here. Is that yes. is that one of your favourite films, Michael? Uh, no, it's ju- it's it's just one that is universally understood. You know, what's your superpower? What's your <laughs> kryptonite? It gets right to the core of the matter. Fair enough. Uh, Julia said, "Excellent point. Re not dropping your price. Such a common misconception. I mean, so true. Um, you know, stand by your price." Uh, is the answer, isn't it? You don't need to be the cheapest. It's about, you know, really going out there and saying, this is what we charge and this is why we charge it. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. price negotiation is the last resort of a business that doesn't have a value proposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah. So we've got the, we've, we've, we've done the analytics, we've done the research. We then need to think about, and so it's about finding your superpower, Yes. So I don't know if you need to talk to me a bit more about that, but what I then want to understand is how you then turn it into and nail your value proposition. Yeah, the the, the superpower um, can be segmented. So depending on the type of business and the number of markets that you serve, um, if you're uh, in a single market, you're selling a particular type of product primarily to one customer type. Um, there's probably a number of things that you can do to identify that superpower. If you've got a more... Um, uh, fragmented product set serving lots of different customers it can be a little more difficult because you have to then do a segmented value proposition Um, finding it is the hard part amplifying it is in many ways easy but the real challenge is how do you do that in a way that isn't just giving a free kick to your competitors to try and copy you and we think that there's some real skill and talent in being able to do that. Um, and thankfully, there's a lot of technology um, that you can use now to manage customer communications in a much more nuanced way. So if you look at something like HubSpot, you can use marketing automation and you can use specialized tools to say, well, here is the message that we're going to have on our public website. This is the message we're going to have there but in our targeted messages to prospective customers we're going to send them to discrete landing pages that aren't accessible from the main website and we're going to do customized message management automation um, cultivation and nurturing of those leads with highly specialized messages and i think that that the investment to do that is not small it is not a small investment to do to to build that sort of infrastructure However, um, the businesses that choose to do that are growing 
in our experience, at a disproportionately high rate to the market and to their competitors, and they're just streaking ahead when it comes to market share. Um, you can still do that in a small way, um, even even in a highly personalised personalized way with a well-trained sales team, for example. Um, Julia, who's um, joined us uh, today in this um, live stream, you know, that's one of her specializations. That's one of her expertise is to say, well, how do you get those, you know, how do you get the sales team on the on the right page saying the right thing? And how do you have them skilled to be able to react to the different customer needs? And I think that if you can get those two things right, if you can get that marketing and sales um, communication integrated and aligned, that's that's a pretty good head start. And I'll just make one last comment on that is that um, how many times have you as a customer uh, responded to marketing message A and then when you rang the organisation or visited there, you got message B. It just didn't resonate with why you went there. And even that is like, a, that, that's just, a, that, that's just a, a free kick for anyone who's prepared to take on that challenge to say, hey, let's align sales and marketing. Let's get them working cohesively. Yeah, yeah, the, and there's a, a huge risk of dropout when they're not aligned, uh, and, yes. and I start feeling that this organisation just doesn't understand me, uh, and so I can see that completely. And um, and in terms of you mentioned HubSpot, you mentioned uh, discrete landing pages. Um, the more targeted you can make something for different audiences, of course, the higher conversion rate. And it's 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 really about understanding that. So so when you so so out of the work you do here, then does 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 do you start um, going deep into the customers? customer personas and 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 the different types of buyers to understand the different value propositions then yes we do it's a it's an integral part of the research that we do and the reason i talk about it through the research lens is that i say this respectfully but a lot of um customer personas are actually just um um sort of ambitious um uh, icons of who they'd like to be selling to as opposed to a, a factual reflection of who the customers are and how they buy. So like I said, I'm saying this in the right way with due respect to the model. Um, we think that the customer personas should actually reflect those deep buying drivers and behaviours of the persona rather than you know, a composite image of you know, grocery buyer X and procurement guy Y and whatever else that often the personas that I've seen are, are purely imaginary and they haven't been drawn up from the, from the, from the facts, from the research. And what we, the approach that we take is to say, well, um, we need to get to the bottom of who that person is and what is really driving their buying behavior. And we need to get it from them. And then we will build the persona up from there. And then we will match our comms to their actual need as opposed to, you know, I, I have a strong belief that whiteboards lie. Don't get me wrong. I use them all the time, but the internal whiteboard session where we map out our ideal customer and we all cheer and walk out and the sales team goes, what happened? We're, you know, we're still the, walking into the same market with the same tools it's just that we're supposed to do it differently now well I, I i'm such a huge advocate of going to the customer getting the fact base from them as to how they buy and then building the personas up from there so is so what are some of the key ingredients in a persona that you would be creating is it less about uh job titles and 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 you know hobbies and interests and etc is it more around pain points and uh, uh what are, what are the other key ingredients that would be in a, a persona that you'd be working on 
Yeah, look, absolutely. There are occasionally some consumer marketing personas that are relevant to a particular job type, but it's rare. So, you know, if they, you know, drive a ute and drink chalk milk and own a dog, it probably isn't going to change the way they specify um, non-architectural handrails in, in a fire exit. So our view would be to say, well, what's really buying, what's really driving their fears and anxieties what's really driving their hopes and aspirations in relation to that product purchase in the context of that job in their in, where they're currently at you know do they have ambitions around just keeping their job um, do they have ambitions about growing their responsibilities in that job um, who are they most afraid of and I know that sounds like an you know, absurd question but you know are they most afraid of the certifier who's going to come in and say no that's not right rip it all out are they most afraid of the customer who says I don't want to spend that much so we need to really understand what's driving at an emotional level their buying behavior you know, what what risks are they trying to avoid in that purchase and how can we mitigate those risks to make our, our customer's product a safer choice for them and in fact the preferred choice because it meets their personal needs and then it doesn't matter what football team they barrack for or you know whether they drink lattes or iced coffee and all of those other sorts of um, uh, you know fluffy pieces of personas that often sneak in from consumer marketing we think it's entirely to do with the, the psych psychological map of the customer what's driving the emotional um, and risk-based buying decision for them and how can we give them confidence uh, in our customer's product that it's the lowest risk purchase and and how do you um uh, how do you understand how they buy so so you talked about understanding their fears and their anxieties and i love the question around what are they afraid of but yes. how do you understand what how do you understand how they buy that that's that's a deep dive. Um, so it doesn't matter what category um, you're in. There's uh, that invisible buying committee that we talked about. Um, I'll sort of reflect on the on, uh, the question that's come through from from um, from Nathan. Um, if you look at building and construction market, there may be a procurement, you know, an estimators team and procurement who are who are managing some parts of that buying process. But there's a ton of people inside that business who have got a view, everything from the, um, you know, risk officer to the, you know, um, fire warden, um, OH&S. There's just, a, 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 just a, an enormous number of people. And we have found that the best way is to get a, a, you know, a, a consensual interview with them where it's clear to them that what they say is confidential as in it won't be attributed to them so they can speak their mind secondly that it's not just a series of you know on a scale of one to ten how much do you love us type questions that they're actually genuine open-ended exploratory questions that get them talking about the key issues and drivers and once that trust and rapport is built in a customer interview of that standard they generally tell you what you need to know and we find that there's a um, there's really a shift that occurs in a customer interview like that where they think it's going to be on a scale of one to ten type questions so they go hurry up what's the next question and then once they start talking about the stuff that matters to them and we maintain a deep interest in understanding that not defending our client not arguing back doing none of those things, just saying, I just want to understand, help me more understand that more. What was the impact on you? They say, well, actually, this is what it meant. This is what it means. So 
we feel that that's the only way you can really capture that information. And point blank, they won't tell that to the salesperson or the sales manager, and they may not even say tell it to the business owner, even if asked directly. There's always a curated relationship that occurs between the customer and the vendor and we think you have to break those walls down and find a find an impartial way to to, to do that I, it, it's a strange comment but in, to, to some people have said we kind of act more like marriage counselors we don't have a solution we just ask lots of questions <laughs> uh, and if you're talking we'll keep asking questions and <laughs> unlike a, a counselor we don't uh, we will never end the interview. If they're still talking, um, we'll keep writing notes. And the longest customer interview we've done is about three and a half hours. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I think you're, what you're tapping into here is is a, a question that Nathan's asked, which is would uh, love you to say a bit more about um, it's not just your customer that's, because they might not be the buyer, but it might be a specifier or an architect or an end client, et cetera. Um, yes. I, I'm, uh, before we sort of, go further with that what what you're what i'm hearing is that it's about talking to a number of different uh, uh people within the business decision makers in the business that might be involved yes. in the decision and understanding all the different parts to then and that that's how you understand more about how they buy so if you if if you're can you give me an example of some of the questions? Because I, I know it was about the fears, the the anxieties, and, and who they're afraid of. But if you if you're talking to, for example, the I don't know uh, head of finance as as one part of the equation, is it yes. similar questions, or is there a particular? Is there any other questions that that you could uh, suggest that w- would be asked? It it really does vary on the job type. Um, the questions tend to be open ended rather than targeted. But for example, um, in, I'll use the example in um, mining. Um, lifetime cost of ownership is a much more intriguing um, uh, number to measure for a finance head of finance than the actual capital equipment cost. They're much more interested in the lifetime cost of ownership. So um, once you dig around to understand what it is, what problem are they trying to solve and what measure are they using when they look at that bid? So they've got you know proposals from three or four different suppliers. What lens are they looking at that through? Because the OH&S person is going to be looking at it purely on a safety impact lens. Like what is the safety impact of the, having this product on my site? The operator is going to, you know, the machine operator is going to be looking at it purely on their own experience as, as the operator. And they're not even remotely interested in lifetime cost of ownership, which, is, which comes down to that segmented value proposition, which is yeah. absolutely required for each person in that buying journey. I'll go back just for Nathan's um, question, just with architects or building and construction. The job of the marketer in that situation is actually to defend that specification all the way through down to the installer because everybody in that cycle is trying to value engineer out the the specified product to a cheaper product so they can make more margin. So just getting it specified in by the architect is not enough. Uh, Just getting the, the the builder to agree to it and sign it off is not enough because each person has got the opportunity to value engineer that out and swap it with something else. So you need to understand how would we make the risk for the installer so high for them to swap out from the specification that they wouldn't consider it? How, how do we, how do we 
apply the same lever to the project manager that they don't brief the installer to say, look, put in whatever you want, mate. I just want stair nosing. How do we have the project manager say, look, this is what's in the specification. You need to quote me on that. So it's about defending that through each chain. What We look at it quite simply. What is every opportunity that's going to occur for our deal to get torpedoed and what conversation would we need to have with that person to change their mind? And then if you if you know the answer to that, then you can amplify that through the power of marketing. And that's that's where you get that disproportionately high market share. I should just make one point. A really good salesperson does this intuitively. A really good salesperson actually knows, hey, I'm talking to procurement here but there's other people inside that big monolith who are going to be influencing this and i'm going to find out who they are so they start going up and sideways and they start working their way through the business to have that influence but um not every you know you can't do that on every deal in every business which is why you need marketing yeah and 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 also what i'm hearing here is the strategy is actually not just doing it intuitively as a salesperson but actually understanding it way before you start and and sort of you know having it detailed out and spec'd out and knowing exactly what you're entering yeah yeah it needs to be codified it yeah. it needs to be codified from a fact base and if it's codified and documented then it can be amplified and importantly that's got scale to it and and yep. and scale gives you disproportionately high return on investment and return on effort but if you go back to the enterprise value question if you've got um, if you've got scale in how you're growing your business through the sales and marketing lens, that adds a disproportionately high valuation to a business because it's not like, oh, that was a blip in sales where they've just ramped it up. It's like, no, they've actually got an engine. They've got an engine which runs sales. The, the it, I, I was uh, seeing that value proposition is typically made up of uh, your strength, your what you call superpower, uh, mm. what market is actually winnable uh your kryptonite what's what what do you mean by your kryptonite what's just just help me understand that more everyone has kryptonite and the funny thing about kryptonite is that most people don't know what their kryptonite is um so what i mean by that is that they see an opportunity in the market it might be a new product they could add into their product set it might be um it might be to enter a new market and um don't get me wrong you need you need confidence in what you're doing to be an entrepreneur you need to have that um that mindset but for example we did a project in um, automotive spare parts in australia and the buying process and the distribution model for automotive parts is different on a state-by-state basis so the model that works in new south wales would not work in queensland and you know the what it's so the assumption that you can just pick something up and 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 um yeah, we, we, we're great. We're really good in this market. We're just going to jump over the, over the border and we're going to you know, run the same model over there. That's a kryptonite. It's a lack of awareness around the gaps. But I, I want to use a more simple example. Um, this is a client that um, is a New Zealand-based client who sold um, uh, equipment which actually sort of bolts air conditioners onto roofs of commercial buildings and those sorts of things. And in the customer interviews, we found these repeated examples where the product wasn't actually fulfilled properly. They weren't actually sending the right stuff. And the customer interviews revealed that we said, well, what's the impact of that? And the guy kind of took a deep breath and said, do you really want to know? And I said, I absolutely do want to know what is the impact of that. 
and I got a, a, a story which was close to 50 minutes of what happens when, you know, six air conditioners are delivered to a site to get mounted on a high rise and they've organized a crane and the wrong bolts were sent to actually secure these things. And it was an expletive load laden conversation for 40 or 50 minutes, which said, you know, unless these guys fix this, don't bother talking to me about another deal. So they had operational weaknesses, which by the way, we're not geared to help them fix. Like that's not our superpower to fix their operational weaknesses. But the advice that we gave them was do not turn on an aggressive marketing engine at all, because all you're going to do is invite an ever increasing number of customers to be dissatisfied with the outcome, which has got to be bad for you. So, so, you know, we're, we're actively you know, deterring them from, from doing that. And we said, you know, you need to bring in a lean management consultant who can act, go and work out what's going on in the warehouse, work out what's happening in the back there and fix that system. And once that fixed system is fixed, then come back and talk to us. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the uh, things that you could do immediately, and that was around going and speaking to your customers. I was just wondering if we could finish on it on maybe one or two other immediate points that you could, that you know, me as a business owner uh, or director or you know, leader could go off and do right now, whether that be to feed into the competitive strategy or to feed into the value proposition. Sure. Look, the the first thing that I would probably do is to go and look for the gaps. And one of the places to go for that is um, um, credit notes and those types of things. So look at your business and say, where are we actually letting people down? <laughs> let's, let's, let's momentarily you know, take off our, our, you know, our, 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 um, our superhero cloaks and you know, that we're the best at everything. And let's just look at what, what we're not getting right. And let's get an understanding of how much difference that makes to our growth and to our customers. And can we fix that? So that you know that that's that's a very low cost simple exercise where you just look for some gaps. If you wanted to look, if you said, look, you know, we've done that and we've sort of worked through all those things and we're pretty confident in our systems and they're working well, then I, I think that customer interviews and if possible independent customer interviews um, are a really good place to start. And you know, just thinking through a cross-section of your customers, so ones who might buy across the range, they buy regularly and across the range, they buy a little bit, and somebody who's like, you know what, that's actually a really big client, but they only buy this much from us. I, I wonder what that's about. And it, it can't be a salesperson doing those interviews, and it can't be somebody who's going to defend the customer and look for the opportunity. It's got to be an independent who says, tell me about that. What's going on there? And doing that in a way that isn't forcing the customer to go through laborious scale of one to 10, how much do you love me type questions, but just says yep. what's going on yep. um, and, and assembling that and saying, what have we learned from this exercise? I, I think that's a, an awesome place for somebody to start. And it's, it, it's better than just starting on the whiteboard with the sales team saying, well, you know, what else should we go for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. This has been brilliant, Michael. We've uh, we've we've run out of time, uh, but I could chat about this for much more. You know, it's it, it's so important to nail this before you do any, as you say, aggressive marketing. Michael, if people mm. want to find you and want to um, talk to you about this, and and maybe you know they they are an owner of a midsize, uh, you know, mining, agricultural, manufacturing business, and really would like some deep help, where do they find you? 
Certainly, they are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. So if they search me on LinkedIn or just visit evettfield.com, E-V-E-T-T-F-I-E-L-D.com, and I'd be more than happy to speak to any one of your um, any one of your listeners. And uh, if we're not the right person to help them, we've got a great network and we'll always refer to somebody who can help them. Excellent. Well, it's been delightful. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, and Michael, thanks for being a, a fabulous guest. Uh, great subject. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. But for now, it's bye from me. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks, Johnny. Appreciate it. Bye. You've been listening to the Johnny Ross Audio Experience. Thanks so much for joining me. If you want to continue the conversation, head over to my website, fleek.marketing or find me on LinkedIn. That's all for today. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, tag me in your social media posts, and please leave me a review on iTunes. It will make a huge difference for me. I will see you soon. Bye.